Welcome to the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast, a conversation built to help you address the mess, connect the dots, and defeat addiction. Doing your work matters because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. Life is tough and we're here to help. I'm your host, Ben Derrick, and as always, I'll be joined by Roan Hunter. Let's jump right in. Roan, it's been a while since we've mentioned this. I'd like to just drop into this episode by talking a little bit about your book, uh, Sex, God, and Chaos, that actually got this idea of this podcast rolling. That's a really great resource available that maybe our, our listeners don't know about. Can you give us a rundown on that? Oh, yeah. The uh, the book is just simply, uh, it is our process that we developed uh, for couples um, wanting to uh, recover, uh, restore uh, their marriage from uh, some form of sexual brokenness, whether that's sexual addiction, porn addiction, um, or just pornography in general, um, because it's all betrayal, um, whether it's just porn, the list, they can't see my air quotes, quotes. air quotes, (laughs) uh, because really uh, it it can can be as devastating as finding out it's a full-blown affair. And so, you know, infidelity, affairs, uh, anything under the umbrella of sexual brokenness, because it seems that uh, sexual betrayal uh, just rips the fabric of a marriage um, more so than anything else, Um, certainly the death of a child. But when it comes to the relationship and sexual betrayal of any kind um, hits the table, um, boy, it, it, it is chaos. And so that's that's our roadmap that we develop just um, because so many couples at that level um, of crisis, you need something more than, well, Ben, how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the house is on fire. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. I don't want yeah. to talk about my feelings. Get me out of here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but really, and, and just part of that was our own journey where we didn't have uh, a lot of direction. Uh, we believe that it takes... Uh, a, a lot of direction. It's not like your typical counseling where you know you kind of meander and mm. do some navel gazing and you, you don't really get anywhere. Where this is, uh, we're just it's much more directive because of the level of crisis and very task oriented uh, along the way. I think that's important to mention. Each couple that I sit with in this particular scenario, the first thing they're looking for is a plan. We need to plan whether they're the betrayed or the betrayer, they're looking for the path forward. And I think we should acknowledge these days, it's, it's not that difficult for someone to write and publish a book. And who knows what kind of information is going to be in it. Uh, but the information inside this book, as I've read it, it just so clearly shows that you guys developed this roadmap over a lot of years working with couples in this situation. So it's time-tested. You know that this particular methodology works. It's not just something you scribbled out at Starbucks one afternoon. Uh, These are skinned knees and working with couples in some really desperate situations. And we know from hearing from our listeners, a lot of them are in that situation in particular. So we would highly encourage, I know that you would, uh, spend a little bit of money, pick that book up on Amazon, start reading through the pages, and it will help at least some of the dust settle until you can get to a clinician. Oh yeah, yeah, it, yeah. We're not we're not TikTok therapists. Um, yeah, those are out there. They, there's They're a quoted lot of often. Them. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are your qualifications? I have an iPhone. Right? Yes, yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> But as you read through this book, I think it'll be very evident uh, from the listener perspective, it'll be very evident. This was born out of 
not only you and Eva doing your work individually inside of your marriage, but also doing work with other couples across the coffee table, we would say, that are in complete uh, chaos and crisis and how that process should go. So uh, you can find it everywhere, actually. Amazon, for me, was the easiest place to pick it up. And that actually gives you the opportunity to read some reviews as well from other readers. So we just want to highly encourage that uh, because I'm getting a lot of questions lately about the name of the podcast. Like, what's behind that? Well, if you've been through it, you know. You don't have to explain the title. Yeah, absolutely. So this Legacy episode, we're bringing in a good friend of yours, uh, Eli. Man, this guy's quirky and (laughs) awesome. I've been with him a few times and just seen him deliver his teaching. And he's so disarming, but very brilliant. He is. uh, Yeah, I always say sitting with Eli is like sitting with Yoda and Gandalf rolled into one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And so, uh, and you know, he's just tremendous experience in this world, uh, really one of the pioneers. um, And he he talks about just kind of a little bit of his backstory on this episode. And uh, he's the one that uh, really kind of got Mark Laser. Many of you may be familiar with uh, Mark and Debbie Laser, but Eli was the guy that um, you know got got Mark back into uh, working uh, in the therapy world because Eli hired him, and then uh, Eli and Mark developed um, you know even the work that we do today uh, years ago, and so man, Eli's just a, a valuable uh, resource, and he's also a Pretty good friend. Yeah. So <laughs> it just sounded like you were rolling out like the six degrees of Eli Machen. Oh, yeah, yeah it is. He's <laughs> one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So we've actually had Debbie Laser on on the podcast to discuss their work and uh, how pivotal that's been in so many couples' lives. We've had Eli on before. We're bringing this episode into our ecosystem because he drills down on something really important that you've labeled the relationship killers, right? And he talks through those things. He does, yeah. We we talk about it. I think maybe it comes from Brene Brown. Uh, you know, in therapy world, if if anybody had an original thought, we'd probably go into a coma. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's the idea of secrets, silence, and judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and those three things, man, it kills intimacy. Again, not sex. We always have to differentiate intimacy Please. and sex. Yep. Uh, but just, you know, if we're holding secrets uh, and if we're not talking, if we're being silent, uh, and then if we are judging, and, you know, sometimes the worst form of judgment is how we judge ourselves, and that can be the worst. Very true. It's interesting as I hear couples rolling out, talking about their story together as a couple, and the partner is feeling judged, but the longer you talk, you realize it's the other partner that's experiencing so much judgment and there's, it's almost asphyxiating. And that's why that person is going towards those coping mechanisms that provide a little bit of relief. So if we can dial down the judgment a little bit, create a safe place that's accepting, we often see healing begin. Absolutely. It's the only way it can happen because it, it'll, it'll shut it down. Uh, any three of those things for sure. And certainly, Eli talks about just you know in, on this episode a little bit about his own backstory and uh, betrayal trauma as well. Yeah, so we can't wait for you to hear this episode. Eli Machen talking about the relationship killers. 
Everybody, welcome back to the Robertson and Easterling podcast. We are, as usual, sponsored by LifeWorks Counseling. And today I have as my co-host, my friend, Roan Hunter. Glad to be back again and hosting with you, sitting on this side of the table. I know. It's, yeah. it's more fun when we get to ask the questions together as opposed to me cross-examining you. Yeah, and you, you're kind of good at that. Well, you know, yeah. I've been doing it for a little bit. But introduce <laughs> our guest today. I'm excited to have him. Yes. So, man, we certainly are so excited. Uh, today, we've got special guest Eli Machen with us. Eli, we usually just refer to him as Yoda. Eli's been around a long time. I'm not going to say he's old, but he's just, he's got a lot of wisdom and experience. Eli's gotten connected with us. I don't know. We connected with Eli, even I did back, I don't know, years ago along the way when we lived in Atlanta. And then it's so funny in our journey and finishing all of our work and starting our practice. Uh, now we actually uh, have the privilege of getting to uh, work with Eli and Jim Crass and doing our couples intensives and just, you know, really kind of riding shotgun and watching them do their work. I mean, Eli truly is, I mean, he, he's kind of what I would call an artist. Uh, he, he is a master therapist. And Eli just has a wealth of knowledge and experience. I think he's done everything you can do in counseling world from uh, running mental hospitals and clinics and private practice and then working with different people along the way. Uh, he does a lot of work up at on-site outside of Nashville, helped develop some of their programs. Same thing at Bethesda Workshops in Nashville, uh, really developed that program along with Mark Laser, uh, who some of our listeners, all of them, 12 of them, may know. No, we have uh, dozens of listeners. Yes, but Eli's just, uh, man, he's been around, and certainly we are grateful for just his friendship, his mentorship, and certainly for me, just uh, him as a father figure fathering and brothering. We do these special focus men's trips. The special spiritual focus is called fishing. Yes. It's very, very serious. Uh, we actually do some work along the, on those trips, uh, but fishing is the focus. And then Eli's been a part of even our men's community here, has been on the trips with us uh, on our big men's adventure trips out of our men's coaching weekends, and certainly he's gotten uh, connected with and is just a part of our community as well. So, man, we are just uh, so glad to have you as a guest on the podcast, and I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to let Craig interrogate Eli, cross-examined, if you will. <laughs> Eli, man, give our listeners a little background. Um, tell us about your work and your life. Well, first of all, I'm just grateful to be here with you guys and, and uh, some of the things that we can talk about today. So thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. My background is, is that I started way back in the 70s, realizing that I, I felt like I was destined to be a counselor. And so slowly worked my way through school. Uh, I wanted to combine my spirituality uh, with counseling, so I combined seminary with my graduate work at University of Connecticut. Uh, so that kind of, uh, I started out with a, a lot of head knowledge and not much experience, but uh, with a lot of big vigor and passion. I think that, that uh, where I got into the field of sexual addiction and so forth was when I was, uh, I had just finished working as a senior vice president of a mental health company, national mental health company in decided to go ahead and launch my own hospital program and full continuing care. And so I, I did that in outside of Tampa, Clearwater, Tampa area. And I had two hospital programs there with eight outpatient offices, community mental health center. And uh, as we began to continue to work with clients, we, we kept seeing this odd behavior come through. 
And we couldn't figure out what it was. It was combined with depression and um, the, the psychiatrist saying this is some kind of obsessive behavior. And it was around sex. And so we didn't know. I didn't know what I was dealing with. I just thought, well, just stop it. <laughs> that didn't work. So, but I didn't know. And so uh, I got a call from a friend who said, there's a gentleman that's coming to do a conference for us. Would you be interested in being a part of that? And it's on sexual addiction. I thought, well, that sounds like something I probably ought to get to. So I did. And I went down to see Pat Carnes and then later went through a training with Patrick at Golden Valley. And that's where I started back in 1989. And uh, that's that. we built our own first Christian inpatient program there. Uh, it was a couple years later. I kept running into this, this other gentleman called, his name was Dr. Mark Laser. And we're working there at Golden Valley with Pat Carnes. And I finally convinced him after a year or two to come work for me and let's build this program up. Uh, we started doing that. And then right around 94, uh, hospital, psychiatric hospitalization was going down the tubes. Insurance was not paying. Psychiatric hospitals were selling out or closing. And so we decided, Mark and I decided to take the program, condense it down to a four, four and a half day program and take it on the road. And so we did. And so in 95, we started traveling and doing these intensive workshops all over the country. And that's the Faithful and True Ministries, right? Well, back then, it was not Faithful and True. It was, uh, <laughs> we, we didn't really have an official name for it. We were just out there doing it. Uh, we worked through different organizations. Sometimes we worked through the American Family Association for a long time, uh, and they promoted it, and we traveled with that. And then they decided to, to not continue that, and uh, and so... I forget what year now, 98, I think it was, they stopped doing that. And so we basically took it on the road for a year or so. And then we then landed in Nashville, Tennessee and took it to Bethesda, which then became, you know, the Bethesda workshops for men, for couples. And Marnie Free was already doing workshops for women with sexual addiction. And so it kind, of, it kind of complemented the whole thing. You wouldn't have any way to know this, but Mark Laser was actually an expert witness for me in a case in the early 2000s. Um, I represented this, this young guy who had looked at some porn and his wife didn't know what to do with it. And so he ended up going to um, some of the workshops that probably you were a part of, but definitely Mark Laser was a part of. And the word sexual addiction for a long time, I'm probably one of the few, the few lawyers in all of Mississippi who's seen porn played in, in open court. And it was in that case that Mark testified in many, many, many years ago. So for our listeners who don't know much about uh, sexual addiction, give a baseline definition. Patrick Carnes' definition was when somebody has a pathological relationship with a behavior around sexual behaviors. So it'd be, you know, basically a pathological relationship with sex and any form thereof. We'll break that down a little further, Eli. So pathological, we've, we've got people like Roan listening to our podcast, <laughs> yeah. that, big words like pathological. I think what, what I often say is this, this uh, it's the confusion that sex and behaviors around sex, uh, without trying to simplify this too much, is it confused with intimacy. I usually refer to sexual addiction as an intimacy disorder. And it's more about a person not really self-loathing, not really liking who they are. They, they hate their life, and they have in their mind that they, well, somebody else, with somebody else, doing something else, that they'd be happy, that, that somehow or another they would be, it would be better than the life they live. So there's a lot of self-loathing and, and self-shame along with the sexual addiction. Uh, outside of 
fetishes and other things that go along with that. But I think basically it's, it's behaviors around in relationships or sex that end up destroying people, people's lives, their soul, their, their, their spirit, their hearts, relationships through objectivity as opposed to intimacy. You mentioned the uh, when you started in Clearwater, Florida. What what year was that when you were you had the program? Uh, we start we actually didn't start we were start doing it in 89, but we didn't have the a, a official program until 90. And then Mark came down somewhere around in late 91. And I should have been there in 1990, not working with you, but as a patient. But, you know, back then, as you know, there was just, there was nothing out there. I mean, you know, Patrick Carnes was it. And then you guys probably were, you know, not not far behind him. No. Uh, so really, you know, it's one of the things with Eli, is just, you always say he's one of the pioneers in this work. And, you know, another piece of, you know, work that you really helped even develop and other therapists use the model today is working with partners uh, of sexual betrayal and dealing with the betrayal trauma. So just touch on that briefly, if you would. Sure. We had some spouses start calling in and saying, you know, our husbands are coming back from these workshops and they're they're acting different and they're talking different and they get in their little groups and it's like, okay, what are you going to do for us? <laughs> what about us? And so... You know, I am at this point an unrecovering spouse and I have no clue what to do. But we built, we started building a program. So we put together an intensive program uh, in 95 to start working with, with partners. Now that was the beginning. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes in the early days of calling them codependency. I got stoned twice. Uh, no, not with weed. I mean, with rocks. <laughs> um, and it's like, so it was, it was a process of us learning the whole thing. I mean, in the, in the, the work around partners and spouses of sex addicts is still going on today. I think it's still evolving. And uh, it's come a long way since those early days. So that's, it started there, and I didn't really get into my own recovery until 99. Talk about that piece a little bit, because I know that was a that was a huge— all of us, I always tell people, you know, when you're looking for a therapist, one of the first questions you need to ask them is, how much work have you done? Uh, how much time have you spent sitting on that couch? And so certainly talk about that part a little bit in doing your own work and how that came about. Well, I didn't have any idea I needed to be on a couch. I wasn't one that had problems. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the solution. It's just like, you know, I was, I, you know, I thought I was taking the high road. I thought that I was the, the, the one who had it together and I wasn't doing stuff that was inappropriate. And so what, what was my problem? And so I, I think I suffered from the, the lack of really understanding deep within, you know, some of my own need for the work. Uh, and so that my, my codependency, my, the, the other dynamics that may or may not be connected with a partner with sexual addiction. And I, I know I'm using these terms. Anytime I think we get caught up in a relationship with an addict of any kind, it, it has a huge impact on us. And so... So, I, you know, that's kind of the key thing is that I started my own recovery in 99. I started going to Al-Anon because at that time I couldn't find an S-Anon. I went to Al-Anon, I, I got a therapist, and I, I, it wasn't too many sessions, and I began to realize, why in the world did they not tell us in graduate school that this is something we should be doing? It would have saved years of my life. It would have been different. I, it was like it was amazing. It's totally different to sit on the couch rather than being the therapist in a room. It just, it was like... 
uh, I was it was one of the greatest things I ever did for me myself. Amen. Eli, how does that play out in a marriage though? Talk from a practical standpoint on you know the addict and the partner. How, how does that play out in most marriages? Well, oftentimes the addict, the one that's either gotten busted or he he or she has shared that I've got this addiction or uh, maybe they don't even exa- admit that they have an addiction, but they got a problem that keeps coming up and. It's like there's an awakening that takes place, and it's like suddenly you realize that you're not really married to the person you thought you were married to, and you're not sure how much of your marriage is really real. You you don't have any way to judge how much of this relationship truly existed the way I thought it did. And so I'm not sure how I'm married to. I'm not sure how much of the marriage I was really a part of. And because of that dynamic and the way the brain works with our own self-esteem and self-image, is that we then begin to question who in effect we are. And so it's that struggle to suddenly lose context of who we are. We've lost our me. And oftentimes we've done behaviors that are uh, throwing ourselves under the bus, putting ourselves behind, uh, the trying to keep the marriage, trying to be enough in the marriage, doing a lot of kind of uh, dysfunctional behavior uh, in the sense of thinking, at least I did, of thinking I'm, I'm doing the right thing here. This is what this is what I'm supposed to do, and the pain I go through is just the suffering I got to I got to go through. So we all get weird thinking around that, and it's hard for us to understand we are part of the problem. It's just really hard because we're not doing that stuff, but we're running around trying to. We put ourselves last. We run around uh, focused and obsessed over what our partners are doing or not doing, and who they're doing it with, or where they are, or what's going on. And we, we lose our life somewhere along that process. No, we don't even, it's not about us anymore. I think that that's why it's so hard for us to realize, why do I need help? And then the whole difficult process of now trying to figure out how am I going to ever trust again? You know, that, that's like, how can I ever know? And that's a double-edged thing. It's a program I've put together. I've now got it on YouTube for anybody that wants it. But the, the point being is, is like, how do I even trust me? And I think I didn't realize that at first until I went further down. I was thinking, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust any women. You know, they're all going to da 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 And I kind of generalized my fear, my anxiety, and my trust, or lack of trust, there it is, uh, across the board. And really, the major problem I needed to start with is learning to trust me. Could I make really good decisions? Could I really know reality as, I, as it is? Or do I rewrite it? Or do I make it, do I only look at what I want to look at and, and deny what's really right there in front of me? As the sober I got in my own recovery, my ability to see reality and embrace it and say, okay, this is what's real. The further I got in that, the, the crazier I realized I was. You know, looking straight at grass and saying it was some other color than green because it was easier for me to see it that way than to see the truth. I've heard you talk about it, but the idea that, you know, when, when a partner says when when all hell breaks loose and everything comes out into the light, and the partner says, you know, well, I had no idea that this was going on. And I think that's kind of where you talk about the intimacy disorder, because it's like if this other person is over there in the bushes uh, not showing up, and you don't know that they're not at the show-up place, that's what we call an intimacy disorder. Right. If I'm not, you know, you've, you've heard me talk, Ron, about the show-up place, and it's like, it's easy for me to look across the other side of the show-up place and say, my spouse or partner never showed up. But then, like you're saying, why didn't I know? Well, guess what? <laughs> I, I wasn't there either. 
Now, and I think that that's the huge piece there is that why do we get Buffalo is because I didn't know I wasn't showing up and I didn't know I was connecting intimately with somebody or whatever else and ex- or accepting it not being that way. And so I, I think that that's a huge piece of us uh, as partners is to learn how to, uh, how do I know I'm showing up? What do I need to do to show up? What does it mean to me to be authentic? And I think one of the key things, I say it over and over to couples today, safety is the most important thing. If I'm not going to feel safe, I'm not going to show up. You know, so I think that the first part and most partners need to know, oh, is this relationship going to make the distance or not? Are you committed to this or not? Are you going to stay? Are you going to work your program or not? Because this doesn't feel safe if that doesn't happen. And it's hard for the partner or spouse to show up vulnerably when they're not sure they really got somebody with them at the short place that's going to do the distance. And when we're talking about the the show up place, and I really like the sound of that, that is where one steps into an environment where they can be vulnerable and where they can be real and where they can be transparent. Help help me and our listeners understand what is the show up place. Well, it's, it's any place that's like Ron and I have a show up place because we're friends, we're colleagues, we work together. And so, you know, it's like we have boundaries around our relationship or with things that are kosher and not the things that are acceptable between the two of us. And so in that safety of that relationship, the safer we feel, the closer we get. It would be that true with my wife and I. We focused big time on building safety in our relationship first. And as safety came along, the ability for me to be in this show up place, this this place where I come to a relationship, whether it's with my son, whether it's with my wife, or whether it's my, my friends. It's like, if we have the boundaries in place, we have it defined. Okay, this is our relationship that we're going to have. Uh, and so as that relationship is defined, then we have boundaries and there's that safety. Then I come to the relationship as transparent as I can. And that's me showing up. And I think my job in my recovery is that I'm to show up. My job is to show up with my clients, with my friends and colleagues, with my wife, and with my son and children. And so if that makes any sense. So it's like, it's however I come to a relationship. And depending on how transparent we're willing to be, depends on how much I'm showing up. Well, help me understand a little bit more because you talked about the partner and what we're, our listeners who aren't as familiar with some of this vernacular and language is the partner of an, of an affair or, or of an addict. And you talk about that person not being at the show up place either. What does that mean, Eli? Well, if, if someone is acting out and objectifying, then they're not being authentic and real themselves. It's, in other words, I, I believe that it's like if, I'm, if I objectify someone, I've already objectified myself. I, I'm not, I don't want to be who I am. I want to be somebody else. I want to with somebody else. I, I, and so once we begin to objectify ourselves and others, we're not showing up authentic. We're not being intimate. We're just totally, we're, we're vacant. So we can be in a relationship and not real, not honest, not transparent, not vulnerable. And so uh, a person could live with us a long time if they're willing to accept that level of relationship and never really know us. And so that's the piece that's like, you can't do both. And the confusion is, is a lot of guys I've worked with in the past who said, well, why can't I do porn? Why can't I do this? You know, I, I could show up with my wife. And I said, do they know that? Do they know you? No. 
well, then you're not really transparent. You're not really being vulnerable. You're hiding. And so I guess that's what I mean by that. So, Eli, one of the things, just I hear you talk about it, we talk about it, you know, the three things that kill intimacy, kill relationship, the secrets, silence, and judgment. And when that happens, you know, it's going to kill it. You're not going to be able to show up. And so the, you know, being transparent, being open, you know, beginning to like talk about things that need to be talked about, and then not getting uh, judged at, at the show-up place. And ultimately, you know, when those things are not there, that's true intimacy. Eli, I'm going to ask you a divorce lawyer question. So why, why do people have affairs? Why does it happen? Why, you know, our listeners are, you know, they know I'm a divorce lawyer and I've got this podcast with the marriage counselor. And so I don't know how weird that is, but, but break it down, I'm, man. I'm cheaper. Very true. We had a financial uh, planner on the podcast, and he said the biggest financial event that most people are involved in is the breakdown of a marriage, is a divorce. I don't care if you're the founder of Amazon, the big as many multi million dollar (laughs) transactions as he was involved in. The a divorce is the single biggest financial. Uh, transaction, but just boil it down just as simply as you can. Why, why do people cheat? Why, why do people have affairs? Well, that's what I was saying earlier. They're, they're discontent. I think that uh, Rome brought up an issue around shame. Uh, you know, and shame always comes with a message of, of ne- a negative message of who you are. And so, uh, as this, most of the time, uh, affairs happen long before the relationship. And what I mean by that is the roots, the, the, the seeds of an affair have usually started years, years before the affair ever starts. And so an affair just doesn't typically, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to speak generally because there's always exceptions somewhere, but an affair, you typically is not, if I have a client that comes in and says I had an affair, well, it, it, it doesn't take me long to root out that there's probably history that goes all the way back to something in junior high school or thereabouts, early, early life. And so the seeds of that and the sense of what would make me happy and what would fulfill me or it would dispel the lie of shame is this person, this relationship, this sexual acting now, the the person that they're looking at in the pornography. And so then they look across the street or look across a room and they say, if I had this person, then I would feel better about myself. It would, it would be this, if I, if I could have an affair with this person, then it would make me feel so much different about me. And so it, it never does, but that's the lie. And so it's, it's a failure to accept the fact of, of who we are and embrace that. I've been a divorce lawyer now for 20 years, and I've been telling people most of that time that an affair is usually a symptom of the disease not the disease itself. And what I'm hearing you say is the seed, the root, the virus, um, to use my disease analogy, is this uneasiness with oneself. I don't like myself, and so I am seeking after something that I think is going to be more fulfilling or something that's going to help me medicate the fact that I don't like myself. Self-loathing is a sense that I, because of the stories in my head, prior trauma, prior shaming, environmental influences, is that I don't like me. I, matter of fact, I hate myself or I loathe myself. And so that's easy for me to then project into the relationship and say, well, it's my relationship's fault. 
or you know, so if I was with somebody else, being somebody else, doing something else, then I, that would tell me that I'm okay, that I'm all right, that I'm I, I'm trying to get validation of who I am externally, and so therefore the affair. I've I've had conversations with men uh, over the years. Well, I'm really happy in my marriage. I just do this on the side. I says, well. You know, okay, why is what's on the side that gives you that's not going to give you what you want in your marriage? And so he lists off this long list. This is oh, so you're saying that this means you're satisfied, that there is something completing in this relationship? Well, no. And so finally we get down to the truth that they really, it's about when they say I'm dissatisfied in this relationship or with this partner that I'm with or the spouse, it's really about them. And they want their partner or spouse to change that. And so if they can't, then, okay, it must be out there somewhere. Now, in bottom line, I'm sure we said this earlier, this is really an intimacy disorder. And if I can't connect with myself, my true self, my authentic self, and, and have an intimate, dynamic relationship with myself and be okay with that, then I can't then connect with another. But I'm going to project that on somebody else's fault. So it's like, okay, I'm just with the wrong person, that's why. And so that's the dynamic that uh, I think draws and pushes that whole thing. Which creates this behavior that we we act out and we hide and we lose that intimate connection with our spouse and that vulnerability with our spouse, which is what is the foundation of a fulfilling relationship anyway. It's like when we're acting out, the shame of acting out, whatever that is, just reinforces the shame that's already there. And it's it's so counterproductive because it just produces more and then we want to pursue more. Comfort, medicate, fix it. And it's it's just a perpetual cycle. That's what you're describing then yeah. is the addiction cycle. That's what it is. And so in the desire that one has to medicate the shame, they create more of it. Yep. Yeah, and the shame is the driver so often. So, Eli, I'm very interested in the um, in the piece of the partner, though, because so many times I'll have a person who comes into my office, and maybe they went to a counselor's office, or maybe they didn't, and they come into my office, and the other person's affair is, in in their mind and in their heart, the only thing that's wrong, and therefore they you explained it before, but they, um, you know, it's their problem. Fix them. They're the cause of this, but what I'm hearing you say is that's not always exactly how it happens. You're asking me about how we choose and, and, and choose a partner and somebody that we have in a relationship, and that, then we turn around and blame that partner for not doing what we had hoped would change our world or our life. And dynamic, the dynamic is, is that I'm going to find somebody out there that knows how to do the dance I've learned to do in life. So if I grew up with in an unhealthy environment, with unhealthy attachment relationships, then I'm going to find somebody that's going to be the same way. That's so that we can dance the same dance. And so if I'm unhealthy, I'm going to find unhealthy. Uh, if I grew up in a home, and I walk right past healthy all day long, they won't interest me. They're not something that's going to flip my switch. They're not dangerous enough. They're not needy enough. They're not what, because that doesn't fit my dance. Now, if I grew up in a different environment, a different home, where there was a lot of healthy boundaries and it was a lot of there was a healthy nurturing and caring and attachment, then I'm gonna walk right past the unhealthy because I'm gonna be drawn to the healthy so that we can dance a dance that I know. So we have this saying oftentimes we'll say is that healthy and unhealthy, uh, well, healthy and healthy can live together, and oftentimes unhealthy and unhealthy live together. 
It's not very pretty, but they do. And But rarely will ever healthy and unhealthy engage in a relationship, or if they do, stay in that relationship. And so that's that dynamic because maybe certain things attracted you to this person, but then y'all don't know how to do this dance. And so if either of those partners don't choose to move towards healthy, then what happens is, is that they don't make it. That's kind of that dynamic. It's like I'm looking for somebody to deal and go through repeating the trauma that I grew up in because I know it. And so it's like, okay, I know this trauma. We call that trauma repetition. As we're closing out this episode today, let's talk about, let's give some hope to the couples that are listening to this. I mean, you you talk about um, unhealthy and unhealthy can be in relationship with one another and healthy and healthy can be in relationship with one another. How, how does a couple get there? To Talk about the roadmap to recovery. You talked about how, how what's a couple... What's the hope for a couple that finds themselves, they're in a relationship and it's really dysfunctional? It's like, it's very unhealthy. Whether there's infidelity going on or not, it's just unhealthy. Now, this couple says, okay, we were wounded in, in, in a family, in a community early on, and being isolated in ourselves, we're not doing anything but staying dysfunctional. So if this couple is willing to, both individuals in this coupleship are willing to reach outside of themselves and look for help, then the chances of them achieving a relationship that they really, really long for and what I think we've been created and built for is that that's their hope. And so one would be is that they, they get into counseling. They're doing in dealing with individual wounds and trauma in their life that are impeding their ability to show up, be vulnerable and intimate. Then as they get into, okay, we know our dance as a couple is dysfunctional and painful and hurtful. We don't want to continue this, but we don't know how in the fact to get out of this. Well, then have a couples counselor teach you the skills to build and mentor you into a relationship that you never thought was even possible, that you may never have experienced. Now, also, we teach oftentimes is that you can't heal alone. You know, healing takes place. Wounding takes place in some kind of community. Healing takes place in community. And we're, we've been not been designed to heal in isolation. So having uh, support groups, uh, having friends that are in recovery and moving in the direction that we want to be moving in. It, there's a synergism and also hope provided and empathy, which is really important in the healing process, is somebody looks at you across the room and says, I get you, I've been there, and there's hope. And then you, you got this me too factor in the sense that there is this, you know, somebody out there understands me and gets me, and I'm not alone with this. And so that's why in recovery, we encourage the 12 steps, support groups, therapy groups, you know, community in which everybody is healing. Right. I like to tell people, and I think it's true, that if a person, let's, let's say there's been a discovery and they end up in my office or they end up in Roan's office or they end up in your office, I tell them that it's as if they're standing at the foothills of two equally complicated mountains to climb. And um, both of them are extremely difficult and their lives are going to be very different on the other side of those. But what, what I'm hearing you say is for uh, for people to experience wholeness and for people to experience recovery, both partners have to journey over that that mountain um, together. Yes, you talk about two mountains here that we have to climb. One is the divorce side and one is the recovery side. And yes, either way, 
I mean, it's a tough gut. It's tough on the children. It's a tough on everybody that's around it. So you got to make a decision which mountain are you going to climb. Now, I'll say this, that, you know, for those couples who decide that we're going to climb the mountain of reconciliation and healing as a couple, that they find when they get to the top or at least close to the top that there's a level of glory and, and experience that they never thought was possible. Is it a climb? Yes, it's a climb. Will it continue to work on that relationship from now on? Probably. Do you ever reach the apex of that mountain? I don't know, but because there's always room for improvement. But the brighter the sun shines, the, the cleaner the air, the more the environment, the, the, the awesomeness of a relationship that achieves that makes the climb worth it. Eli, man, thanks for connecting with us today. Tell our listeners where they, I, I know that you've got lots of resources available online. Tell our listeners where they might find a little more information about the work that you do. Um, I know that I've seen some of your YouTube videos. So tell our uh, listeners where they can connect with um, your work. Well, yeah, you asked me where my videos go. Uh, you can get some of this information videos. I've got uh, 50 plus videos on YouTube. The channel is Show Up 365, all one word. Show up 365. I've taken all my videos and put them up there for free to access. Some you will see in playlist, and some are just, you know, individual videos. Uh, you take your pick, but it's, uh, I think you see that part of that was designed to help couples rebuild trust in their life and their relationship when there's been betrayal. Man, Eli, thanks a lot for spending this time with us. Yes. We really appreciate you. I enjoyed this. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. To learn more about what you've heard today, and to engage with the Sex, God, and Chaos team, visit sexgodchaos.com.